0: If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its
1: glory without the ads. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you.
2: You have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by Acast.
2: It is podcast time. John is sitting opposite me and he is upset and affronted at parochialism (laughs) and small-mindedness. But today we're going to talk Big ideas, Jim. Big. Go Let's hard go. to we're go, go talk, home. We're gonna talk about a concept called civilization. Small, small idea. We're gonna wrap it all up in half an hour odd. But I was in London this weekend.
0: Oh yeah. How? Contemplating civilization. Well, before we get to civilization, how was
2: Lucy's gig? It was fantastic. She played in the electric ballroom. In Camden One of the iconic It's venues. a great venue It's, it's a, a, a really yeah. Really good venue yeah. And you know When you look at the wall And you see who's played there before Yeah It's like wow Like yeah. everyone has played it's there It's a beautiful
0: theatre
2: Beautiful theatre Yeah beautiful theater. But it's also got a musical Feel to it You yeah. know it, you, you can sense that there's Deep musical
0: history there. Yeah and I've spent many a night there. I yeah, have to so say. it's
2: an amazing place, and people will know. Listening, if you're listening in London, or you've been to London, you'll know Camden. You'll know what Camden means. Camden Markets for music, for fashion, for for everything. I mean, yeah, Camden yeah, is, yeah. is one of those parts of London that I still love. Even though I'm a little bit too jaded to be going to the market now yeah. on Saturday
0: afternoon. But it's also a little bit touristy. Yeah, yeah. Say. And what we always felt is we were never
2: tourists there, even yeah. though we actually were, you know. But it was great. It was great. She was many
0: a suit there, actually.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. But she was supporting Inhaler. And their last gig was supporting Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. So they're, they're like off going stratospheric. And it was great. Lucy loved it. It was a huge crowd. And and, and she she did well. You know, it's a, it's always a hard gig to support. It's a huge
0: gig. gig, yeah. It's a
2: huge gig. But she's now uh, supporting Two Door Cinema Club next month in oh, Dublin. Oh, yeah. And that's also so brilliant. Of,
0: so, you know, they're the, not a great live band. They're a too. great live band. They,
2: yeah. I, I actually saw them at Electric Picnic and they came on before the Arctic Monkeys. And the big, this is about five or maybe eight or nine years ago. Yeah. The big idea was Arctic Monkeys were going to steal the show. The three fellas from Donica Day. Do you know what hey. Donegan is? Yeah. Up beside Banger. Yeah. It's right beside where Lucy's Granny's from. Actually. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they, they stole the show. They were amazing. I saw them in Bilbao. And it, oh yeah. yes,
2: you've been there once or twice.
0: I, I was, yeah, yeah. And full times. of energy. Yeah. And full of
2: energy. And, and great pop yeah. songs. Great yeah. pop songs. Anyway, so that's that. But while I was in London,
0: Traits in the streets. I was
2: trafes in the streets, but I was staying in Kensington. And I have a posh enough place now. Mm. And I used to live for a summer in a place called Queensgate Terrace. Now, that's amazing. Listeners will find <laughs> it amazing, right? You'll find, that's very posh. Yeah. You'll, but listeners will find it amazing yeah. that in the mid-1980s or late-1980s, it was possible for a penniless student, think about this, to get a room in the top floor, not a room, like a shared room, in the top floor. Of one of those houses because it was before gentrification, so those houses were in eight or nine flats.
0: Were they student flats? They, they were student they flats. They belonged to Imperial it College. Was Imperial College, and I, yeah. I hooked up with a bunch of Canadians,
2: and they As had managed. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. A JMS yeah, yeah, yeah. folk, and they had managed to get a flat. But the idea is, can you imagine you could live? Mm. Right beside the Royal Albert Hall. I used to get up every morning and go to work. I was working in a place called the Royal Kensington Hotel as the (laughs) shittest barman. I was so bad they used to put me in the day shift. Have you ever been in a hotel bar in the day? (laughs) Nobody's there except the barman, (laughs) right?
0: Okay. But it was great for me. Shaking cocktails. Shaking
2: cocktails and reading the International Herald Tribune in the New York Times. It was one of those international things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Devouring newspapers <laughs> pretending to make cocktails. But anyway, anyway. What'll sir have? A snake bite. Sure. Coming up. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> A Bulmers. Anyway. But while I was in London, I was walking around South Kent. And South Kent, of course, is the imperial centre of London. And it's so beautiful and all the museums. Yeah. But it's the monuments that interest me. Like mm, yeah, Albert yeah. and Victoria and all these like chinless wonders on horses <laughs> who'd obviously gone out and ruled the world, okay? And, you know, Clive of India. These were, these were just like generally rapists and pillagers and terrorists too, yeah, yeah. who destroyed things. But, of course, under everything was the moniker of civilization that we were doing this i.e., the Brits were doing this mm. under the moniker of civilization. Now, if you're Irish, you're like, ah, here. Okay? Yeah, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm not having that. Right, You don't get to get away with that. We're not getting away with it. But well, what fascinated me was the whole concept of European civilization and what Europeans did or have done in the name of civilization. Yeah. And then the idea that if you look at, for example, in, in London, all the British Empire, are echoes to something like the Greeks and the Romans, right? It's the same colonnaded stuff. It's the same ceremony. And it's this idea that we've convinced ourselves as Europeans, even us Irish people who are kind of, I just think, kind of slightly detached Europeans, but we have convinced ourselves that there is a direct line from the Greeks and the Romans through Western civilization, through the Renaissance, through Dante, Mm. right, through the Reformation as well, then into the French Republic and to us, right? And I'm not talking about Europe as the EU. I'm talking about Europe as the area. And I felt this also last week when I was in Warsaw. Remember I was saying the whole idea of Chopin and classical music, that Europe is the great exporter of civilization to the world. This is one of our default positions. And that European civilization and Western civilization has now been exported to America. And, of course, the Americans ate the whole thing. What is Capitol Hill? Only a poor man's version of Rome. Yes, And what yes. is Rome? Only a poor man's version in our heads of Athens, right? So this idea that we're all kind of the children of Athens, an Athenian democracy. Okay, and that's what okay. gives us yeah, the yeah, yeah. right to kick lumps out of people. Yeah. Now, this is what happens to me on a Sunday morning after a gig, John. I know my head is <laughs> melted, but I was <laughs> contemplating these things walking around. You should just stay in bed, Mike. <laughs> I know, I should stay in bed. But if you look at all this, uh, the, the idea is that there's a direct line, it's a great expression, from Plato to NATO. oh nice okay there's that direct line so it's involves science inquiry liberalism democracy all these things and these are uniquely european and then we have decided that they this is our set of cards so Mm. to speak and because it's ours this has allowed the europeans people from this part of the world and we forget that we're a tiny minority to export their ideas number one, but also to rape and pillage the rest of the world and to extract resources. And of course, the high point of that is imperialism and colonialism. Now, as Irish people, because we were colonised, because Ireland is the proof that white people can be colonised, right? That we don't think that we don't buy that stuff because our history is anti-colonialism. Right. But in general, we're an outlier in Europe. That the majority, and I was also, I was listening to Macron the other day, and Macron is now talking about this made in Europe, that we have to go and find European champions, that Europe has, and I think that's fair enough. Yeah. But it all comes from the validation of the entire thing is this notion that we are exceptional and we have created something, right? It all comes to a head now in the last couple of weeks when you see, and you mentioned to me all fair as well, when you see, for example, in Ukraine, the underlying idea is not only are the Ukrainians, not only do they look like us, but they are like us because they come from this European area. And again, our direct descendants are the Romans and the Greeks. And this is our intellectual tradition. And then, of course, Europeans get really shocked when... Asians, yeah. the Chinese, yeah. and the Africans say, well, look, you're having this little skirmish amongst yourselves over there, you know, and I'm not too sure we have a dog in this fight. Yeah. You know, and this is what's having Macron making all these big speeches about Europe because the French are thinking, shit, yeah, these people aren't with us. And the reason they aren't with us is they don't feel part of us. And in fact, our idea of civilization imposed upon them the hundred years of humiliation on yeah. the Chinese and the Chinese the wholesale rape and pillage of Africa over, you know, we've done our casement story. You can pick any story in Africa. Lots of Arab states saying, well, I'm not too sure about this, you know. And of course, India saying, well, look, we've got to do deals with the world. This is a multipolar world. And and you know what? We don't genuflect to your civilization notion because frankly, we had our own. So these are the sort of these are the sort of
0: ideas that are going through my head, John. So are are you separating Europe from the American view then as well? Or yeah. is that is that part of it? Is that an extension of well, it? Well, I think what has happened, right? So Europe, because of the war in Ukraine, Europe has realized, oh
2: my God, right? It's like a boomer. You know, hey boomer. Yeah. Like Europe is the ultimate boomer continent, right? Yeah. And all the politicians who run Europe now were yeah. born after the Second World War. Yeah, So the politicians that built the European Union, the Mitterrands and the codes, they were all born in the war. They were children of the war. Their fathers were killed in the war. I mean, these were people who experienced deep, deep trauma. All European leaders now are born, you know, in the 50s, yeah. right? and the 60s. When things were good and life was fine, it'd be free trade, it would be nice to each other, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this kind of boomer idea the boomers ran Europe in a sort of a cuddly, almost self-regarding, well, we're slightly superior to everybody else, and now we're at peace with each other. And look at the European Union. We've done mm. lovely things. We don't fight anymore. But we kind of woke up about a year ago realising, oh, my God, we're completely dependent on China for goods, on Russia yeah. for energy, and on America for defence. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are we? Yeah. You know, we can't defend ourselves. We can't produce stuff because we've had to China. And we can't actually heat ourselves as we outsource to Russia. But and even if we don't outsource, outsource it to Russia, you know, it's going to be outsourced to, to, to
0: the Arab countries. Yeah. But we have one big finger that we wag at the world. Which is? <laughs>
2: With civilization.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So today's podcast is going to be on dismantling or unpicking the notion of Western civilization, And the reason the Americans are crucial in this is because particularly in the English-speaking world, particularly in the speaking world, and basically what I mean is basically England and America, mm. lots of colonialism, lots of imperialism, lots of intervention are justified on some moral superiority about, well, we are bringing Greek-Roman civilization to you guys. Look mm. at this democracy and liberalism and, uh, and the rule of law and freedom of the press and all that stuff. Now, of course, the apotheosis of all this is the United States. Yeah. Because in a way, Europe has exported its power to the United States and its culture to America, and America has used that to drive what it costs Pax Americana, yes, which is the American way of looking at the world. So basically, everybody is black or white, is a good guy or a bad guy, mm. and the good guys are always the descendants of people who used to wear togas,
0: right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in,
2: in Athens, right? So, I mean, this is what I want to talk about today, and the great thing is, John, we have an amazing person to talk about these things. Oh, right. We have a professor of history and archaeology from the University of Vienna. Her name is Nisha McSweeney. Half okay. Irish, half Chinese. And I think right. this will underpin a lot of her views. She's just published a book which I devoured when I was down in. Remember, I was talking about uh, being down in Kings Bar? Yes. When I wasn't discussing mink <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and one off housing, I was reading about the history of the West. Yeah. But it's all its, all, it's all about the history. This is all about where Europe finds itself today, why we are confused, why the French are freaking out, right? It's because, in a way, we've persuaded ourselves we are guardians of an idea that gives us moral superiority. And maybe, as Nisha is going to explain, that idea is a total invention and is a total fabrication. And that's why we feel lost. And when the Chinese don't support us, we think, why don't you support yeah, yeah. us? The Chinese are saying, "Why not?" Chinese are saying, well, why should we support you guys? Mm. So let's go to London and let's talk to Nisha. Nisha, how are you? I'm very well. Nice to be here, David. Well, your book is now in Connemara. It is in Roundstone. <laughs> oh, <no>, okay. Okay. <laughs> I gave it, I was proselytising for you the other day and I was like, this is an amazing book, la 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 la. And the person I gave to, which we will not mention on air, did a very sneaky thing, just took it and said no. And which that is always a very, very good sign. It is a very, a very time. good sign.
3: Oh, I, I hope they're enjoying it.
2: Now tell us, give us the, the big thesis of the
3: book. The central argument is that the story that we tell ourselves about where the west came from it's wrong. It's um it's it's factually incorrect and it's been disproved for a long time. And so the second question that the book seeks to address is, is if this is a wrong story and it's been disproved for ages, why do we still tell it? Why do we still cling to it? And the argument that the book comes up with is, is that it's because it's politically expedient and it suited our purposes in order to tell this story
2: until now until now so what i want to do is i'm going to break this chat down to is why now has this notion been shattered undermined questioned okay that's the first thing but let's go back and so what is the big idea because we were all i was john and i were chatting about it you know Western civilization is something that I was thinking. Irish people are unusual in the sense because we were colonized. We don't buy into that idea. You don't buy into you know well Britain came and they were really really nice and they were giving us civilization and roads and railways and that was great. Okay, so we don't buy that. And we've we've been and you've you mentioned Ed, Edward Said, you know the Palestinian thinker. We've been much more closely aligned to that thinking for a long long time. But that makes us unusual Europeans in one way. And I know your dad is from where Sunday's well. Sundays well
3: in Cork, yeah, absolutely.
2: So, you were infused with this Irish sense of the world, I presume.
3: <laughs> From the very, very beginning. And actually, I think it was discussions with the Irish half of my family, which, you know, it, it helped to bring this into sharper focus over the, the last decades as well. And, you know, when I tell my Irish family the central thesis for the book, none of them are that surprised. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we know that already. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know that. But um, much of the Anglophone world still has this idea of from Plato to NATO at the core. And it's not something that's necessarily explicitly spoken. And when you question people about it, they, they might say, oh, yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't work or not all the pieces fit together. But it's still the out there underlying expectations, underlying school textbooks. It's in kind of Hollywood movies. It's kind of an unspoken, omnipresent Cloud hanging over our historical consciousness, especially in the the anglophone, the wider anglophone world, especially in North America. Um, and so the idea written.
2: is that we're basically the children of Athens, is it? Give us the give us the. <laughs>
3: you know (laughs) that's the idea that the the modern west writ large and for which uh, it's very different as well where i kind of live and work in central europe in in austria as well but in in the anglophone west that it comes ultimately it was born from classical greece and that you know the the seeds of that heritage the threads of that heritage run through the centuries through rome and through kind of medieval Western Europe and then out to kind of the Atlantic uh, world of modernity. And that, so that's the kind of the, the, the Plato to NATO timeline.
2: And then, of course, you just start by saying, and the, the, just so the, the first chapter in the book is about a fellow called Herodotus, a <laughs> Greek fellow that people call the father of history. And you you were you're, the first thing is you, you're not so much even questioning this, you begin just to dismantle the theory, right? You're saying, well, he wasn't even Greek. So let's start from there. So explain explain how we, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing fabrication to come up with an origin story that has no origin. That's quite an achievement, right? So explain to me how you dismantled it in the book and explain to the listeners, because it's, it's an amazing read.
3: Yeah, the very, very fundamentals of the story are, are just totally shaky. So Herodotus is questionably Greek. So he writes in ancient Greek. Um, he's got a Greek name. His mother's name is Greek, but we think that he was like me. He's kind of a half breed. His dad is a Carian, they're indigenous Anatolian. They've got an Anatolian name, and he's from. He was born, and brought up in what's modern day Turkey in, in Halicarnassus. and so we know that when he gets to Athens, he gets to an Athens which is becoming there's no other way to put it, increasingly racist. It's Athens, which is expanding an empire, what is what is actually an empire, and it's restricting citizenship rights to people who can claim to citizen Athenian parents, and it's disenfranchising people. It's in cultivating a hostile environment for migrants. And it's, um, despite being quite successful in Athens... As a writer, Herodotus eventually leaves, and you know I can only imagine that part of the reason that he leaves is because it's just a really uncomfortable place to be as as a as an immigrant. And he ends up going further west, small town in southern Italy, retiring by the Italian coastline, which sounds lovely. I think I might try that myself sometime. Well, listen, the, book's selling
2: yes. well, the book is selling well. The book is selling well. All you need now is a TV <laughs> deal and the podcast, and away you go.
3: <laughs> ah, sorted. Then you can do it from
2: anywhere. But then you have to hang yeah. out with old mates for ages, which is really difficult. I hear. <laughs> but listen, you just you just mentioned one thing. You said you're, you 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 felt a bit of a half breed. So is the fact that you're half Cork, half Chinese, is that part of the way in which you look at the world?
3: I think yeah, absolutely fundamentally. Um, as you said, the the Irish are not fully part of the West in this kind of the power games of the West as it's come through. So I've always had that from young, but also because, um, yeah, my mother is Chinese. My sister, she still lives in Shanghai. I spent part of my childhood in Malaysia and, you know, I'm partly Asian too. And so I've, I'm, I am definitely of the West, but I think this is what the modern West is now. It's comprised of a whole bunch of people who have different geographic roots and origins and uh you know it, it's it's a diasporic west as well and the irish are all over the world now and i think that's that's part of what the west is and that's partly why we have to rethink the identity of the west in the 21st century because it's it's no longer what it was at the beginning of the 21st of the 20th century
2: and it's fascinating the book the way you like you pick out you know you go to baghdad now tell me about these kind of Scientists in Baghdad, these mathematicians, these philosophers, and you know, you'd go to Southern Africa. You take these characters who not only undermine the thesis, but are an affront to the thesis that there is this direct lineage between us, the Greeks, and the Capitol Hill in Washington
3: yeah i mean this is this is it i think some of the people who would now seek to defend western civilization would find it very offensive almost to think of these people as being part of the history of the west but they but they absolutely are so you know i've got a chapter on a medieval islamic scholar called al-kindi who was an amazing mathematician an astronomer a doctor a kind of a physicist but he also developed this theory about knowledge and that knowledge is not confined to People of a particular civilization or a particular race. It's something that should be shared by all humanity. And he was very strong in arguing this. And he played a big role in preserving the texts of especially Greek antiquity and building on Greek science and Greek maths and Greek um, knowledge and bringing that through into the medieval period. And this is something which I think, you know, maybe quite a few people are increasingly aware of nowadays, but this. The, the central role that the Islamic world played in the transmission of knowledge through through time and in, in the Western story, we might know it, but it's not part of the, the, the grand narrative of Western civilization. We've kind of written that bit out of history, of Western history. And that's true as well of a lot of the African inputs into to Western history. And you mentioned um, kind of the, the, the African chapter, and that's um, set, it's focused on this, this, amazing woman called Ningjinga, who is a, a warrior queen in modern day Angola. And she fights against the Portuguese very successfully. It's incredible how successful she was. But one of the elements in her success is not just that she's a great general, it's also that she very strategically deploys kind of international diplomacy and she uses religion and Christianity. But there is also this thread of the appeal to a Western heritage. And she's deemed so successful that you've got people writing about her as an heir to Western civilization. They say that she is as wise as an ancient Greek, as chaste as a Roman. So despite being an African queen who is fighting against European imperialism, she's still able to be described as an heir of of Western civilization, which I think is pretty remarkable in the 17th century, um, but
2: unthinkable now. Yeah, I mean, particularly it's coming from the Portuguese who would have actually, you know, staked their claim as being, well, we are the inheritors of Christian civilization. We're going down to, you know, civilise the natives. And they are the idea that, hold on a second, one of the natives is far cleverer, far smarter, far more diplomatic, could actually speak Portuguese as well as are many other talents. You know, And they weren't, you know, these guys were not being able to speak the indigenous languages of Angola at the time. So it is, a, it is fascinating how what you've done is you kind of usurped this whole notion. But what I want to ask you now is why do you think now are Europeans and Americans, you know, for example, if you think in the war in Ukraine, there's a kind of a, people are kind of shocked, like, oh my God, the Indians don't support us, or the South Africans might support the Russians, or the Chinese are, are, are playing their own game because they're a huge power. Why do you think that now this thesis becomes very, very resonant?
3: I think it's the question of there's a there's a big gap between powers that are used to exercising Influence over others and and peoples who are used to having power exercised over them, and you can see absolutely why lots of the world would feel really uncomfortable at one of the major world global powers saying carving the world up and saying this can and cannot align itself with, with 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 different ways, and it's it's just different forms of of imperialism acted out in different ways, and you know. The, the way that some of the Ukraine conflict has been cast is not necessarily listening to the voices of the African nations and, and Asian nations as well, who are treading a very careful line, I think, between understanding different forms of colonialism. And it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's very different. The, the, the story that we're getting in the English-speaking press is is perhaps a bit different from even what we're getting in different parts of Europe.
2: Now, I notice in the book you, you, you elevate and you talk about Carrie Lam of Hong Kong, Tell me about her because she was kind of has been much denigrated in the West as sort of Xi's uh, almost terrier in Hong Kong, and, and you think, well, hold on a second, look at the big picture.
3: Yeah, I think she also was. Uh, she didn't get an easy ride of it in, in in China either in the Chinese press because she was viewed as somebody who didn't have a, a, a strong handle on the situation. So she was. She's a person who was, you know, caught very much between two stools, caught between two worlds and again she starts out her political career there's somebody who's got British citizenship as well as uh, you know Hong Kong citizenship, Chinese citizenship, but she in, she in the idea of East and West coming together is a really positive thing when she starts out her career, and that's how she wants to to sell Hong Kong as this wonderful place where the best of East and West join. But over the course of her career, it just becomes harder and harder to do this, and uh, you know the East and West are going in different directions. She gets a bad press in the West for stamping down on pro democracy protesters, the pro democracy protesters think that she's a puppet of Beijing Beijing thinks that she is a weak leader who is incapable of managing the protests. and she she's not able to make anyone happy really so she's again caught between the stalls and, and not being able to um to, to try and tread the line and, and serving two masters I think there's one thing she said herself that it's really hard to serve two masters and I can just imagine now she's retired.
2: That she's probably a, a bit of a, a rest. Yeah, but I mean, but but in, in a way, like she's emblematic of this cleavage between the old West and the old East, in effect, and then this new cosmopolitan mm. world. I mean, how do you think the West is going to have to reconfigure its thinking to deal with the fact that we are old? You know, Europe is like kind of the the, the boomer continent, right? We're old. <laughs> kind of many people would disparage Europe as being sort of half nursing home, half museum. <laughs> and then we look at Asia. It's a totally different feel. Like I haven't been to Asia for years, but every time I've been there, you just feel this mad, bustling energy, like mad, you know, like that it's coming up from the ground almost. And, and how do you think this is going to play out over the next couple of years?
3: I think the only thing that we sitting in, in Europe can do is to accept it. And to try and, and make make you know, accept and make the best of it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Changing the scales of global power and then the dynamics of the global economy is 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 not necessarily a bad thing and it shouldn't be viewed with with fear and suspicion. This is terrible. As you say, it's still a part museum but that's something that Europe really has it's got um, that kind of strength of cultural traditions which is very dangerous and in, in a world where funding is being cut to cultural institutions and the arts when actually those are some of the things that Europe is strongest on and that it uniquely has and those are things it should be if anything focusing on and capitalizing on and trying to celebrate and bring up so I think that would be a key element in, in going forward as well as as well as the acceptance of a, of a of a changed political and economic reality. I think it was only just a few weeks ago that the BRICS countries outstripped the G7 economically. And uh, you know that that's the reality now. We're now living in that world and to try and turn back the clock is is going to just lead to, to misery as well as failure.
2: Well, just just so the BRIC countries just for for those who that's that's Brazil, Russia, India and China in uh, South Africa and South Africa and South Africa, And of course South Africa are in hot water now with the Americans because they're equivocating on which side they they're and they're kind of saying, well, we're not really on any side. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it that that the Europeans Americans are demanding the rest of the world take sides and the rest of the world are saying, well look, we're not taking a side here. Yeah, and
3: that's I think it's part of the the kind of the old world order is is this rhetoric of the West and the rest. And I think increasingly large numbers of the world no longer want to, to split the world into two, the West and the rest. They want to have a much more multipolar world where um, there are different blocks and it's not just one and the other, black and white, us and them. Um, and I think that's part of the thinking that we we probably in the West need to get out of. It's not us and them anymore. It's, it's, it's just more plural out there.
2: Well, Nisha, you're coming to obviously the epicenter of multipolarism, which is the Doki Book Festival, in a couple of weeks' time. I can't wait to talk to you then.
3: Can't wait to be
2: there. Yeah, no, we'll have a total hoot. But the the the, the book the book is an extraordinary uh, achievement. It's brilliant and it's also incredibly well written. And for someone like me, who's a sort of a generalist, you know, it's like it's 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 written for for punters like me who are kind of curious. But don't really have any insight into almost anything. Isn't that' right, John. <laughs> That's
0: absolutely right.
2: <laughs> so, Alicia, we will see you in Dorky in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks so
3: much. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: So, Mac, so everything I know about Western civilization has all been fake news, has it? <laughs> <laughs> all the way going back to Herodotus, going back to Athens. We were that talk- old windbag himself, Cicero. Yes, indeed. But do you remember just before we were talking to Nisha there, we were talking about London. And when I was there last month, I went to, as I was telling you, the British Museum, which, of course, is full of all the treasures from around the world, from the Elgin marbles to, you know, stuff from Africa and the Far East and the Middle East and South America and, ever, and everywhere. Do
2: you ever think about why the Brits were robbing stuff from Egypt and the Egyptians weren't robbing stuff from Britain? Because there was nothing fucking in Britain to rob <laughs> our Ireland, right? <laughs> so think about it, right? You know, the Elgin marbles, all those, those great things. The reason our museums are full of their stuff, is their civilizations are much older than ours. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the whole idea. Is it?
0: it's, not, it's not even so much that they're older, it's just that... But they, the, were, they, were, they were more sophisticated.
2: They were much more sophisticated. What they had was much more... So their, their craftsmanship, their mysteries... There's more than
0: just getting on with stuff, you know? But the point Other is... That the re- interfering.
2: But, but, but the reason that the Brits were robbing historical artefacts from the rest of the world is historical artefacts were there. Now, why were they there? They were there because these were really civilised places. These were incredibly economically vibrant places and intellectually vibrant places, you know? And this, I suppose, is the point that what we've done, and we're in a way lucky in Ireland, and I think Nisha is right, because it doesn't come as a surprise to Irish people to hear that the West, be they French or Germans or Brits or even the Yanks, right, Mm. have used... Stories to justify occupying other countries, and at the end, that's what colonialism is. Yeah, you know the role of the colonizer is to basically rob the colony. That's why you're there. You're not there to have for the crack.
0: Yeah, and I suppose ultimately it was for a profit. But there, there are many points that yeah. Nisha brought up that we could explore. But it was this whole idea of colonialism was kind of under the guise of bringing civilization to you, we're giving you all these ideas of yeah. democracy and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But but I was wondering that, you know, you were asking, Nisha, why now? You know, why the West is being challenged now or more now than, than before? Yeah. And I was wondering, is it because we're kind of weaker now or seen as weaker? You know, the democratic system and well, our, our economic structure is not exactly working great at the moment. Yeah. And that, along with kind of our Western religions and our cultures, is faltering, you know, with economic crashes and the wealth gaps and the arrogance and the, the obvious double standards in society is even less appealing now to, you know, non-Western societies and cracks are showing. Well, I think, and, and is I think, that the reason why people I think are it is.
2: I think it is. I think, look, you know, there's one thing about doing a podcast like this over the last few years, you kind of are doing a podcast in an age of anxiety. There's no doubt of that. Mm. In an age where things that we thought were permanent are much more fragile than we imagined. Geopolitical settlements like... You know, when we were we were kids, was things like the first and the third world. Yes. We were kind of yeah. the second world. We yeah. were kind of stuck somewhere in the, you know, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, the, and there was the Cold War and there was the communist bloc and then there was the capitalist bloc. And it was all pretty straightforward. Like you knew mm. where you stood. And then you have, of course, at the end of the Cold War, you have this brief period of American superpower hegemony, right? Yeah. And the Americans seemed to blow that because they were in a position, certainly before the Iraq war, to basically dominate the world and to recreate this Pax Americana, and they didn't do it. And in Mm. fact, America has gone the other way. And then, of course, you've got the emergence of China, which is not just an economic challenge. It's a philosophical challenge. It's an intellectual challenge. It's a historical challenge, and it's a political challenge. Because what China's saying is, we don't do democracy, Mm. and we're here. We don't do freedom of the press. We never did. And we're here. Yeah. And we have been a unified political entity for 3,000 years. Just to give you a sense of how unified China has been, right? China, in terms of the way in which it's governed now and the way in which it's entirely broken up, etc., would be like Europe being run by the pharaohs. Uh Imagine that. There's been such continuity in China. Yes, of course, there have been different dynasties and now you had the communist dynasty, which is in effect a dynasty, but the centralized power of China is run in very much the same way. So that is a massive challenge to us. And the Ukraine war is just the latest of a series of exposures, in a way, Mm. of the fault lines between Europe and America who believe that because we've decided to tell a series of porkies about where we came from, that we have some overarching story that makes legitimate our position in the world, and the rest of the world, which is now saying, do you know what? You guys are about 10% of the world's population. Yeah, We're the 90%. We've got a different story. And that's it.